Welcome to Practical Christian Living. God uses everything, good and bad, for His glory and to work in our lives to do the work that He wants to do inside of us. The testing of our faith is not so that God knows whether or not we've got faith. God already knows. But it's so that you and I will know whether or not we have faith. Not all trials come from God, but God can use all trials to strengthen us and to strengthen and encourage those around us. If you're going through a fiery trial, please stay with us and learn more about the beauty and purity that can come from trials when our faith stands strong in Jesus. With 1 Peter 1, verses 7 through 12, here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. Father, we do want to thank you again for your word. It is deep and powerful. And uh, this passage really speaks to us. We pray that we would have an understanding as to who we are and what the life that we have in you is all about. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Chapter 1 of the book of 1 Peter is one of the deepest and most profound passages in all of the pages of Scripture. It's not that Scripture generally isn't profound and deep. It's just that there are a few passages that God just seems to immerse us in an understanding of who we are and what God has done for us. That's the way it is in the book of 1 Peter. After a quick greeting, he dives right into it. And I thought it would be good for us again just to read maybe the first seven verses. We're going to cover through verse 12, Lord willing, today. But I thought it would be good for us to kind of read the first seven verses again and just get a feel for the depth. And then I want to go all the way back and start in verse 6 in our study today just so we get a good understanding. And remember, this whole chapter, he's really encouraging the fact that we are sojourners. We are just passing through. This is not our home. We belong in heaven. You ever just get home and just be so glad that you're home? You ever been on a trip for a while? This last year I went to Israel. And although it was a great trip and it was a great time of fellowship with people, when I got home in my own bed, I actually got, you know how you get that excitement, kind of little shiver like, ooh, yes. I actually got that excitement when I thought about laying down in my own bed. There's something about home. Well, our home isn't here. Our real home is in heaven. And when we enter into heaven, we are gonna be amazed at how much at home we are. That we are just passing through here. And life is not supposed to be comfortable. We're called for a cause. We're called for a purpose. Jesus is not a self-help ministry to help our lives. It's for us to be called to do whatever it is that God wants us to do. And Peter really shows that here. It starts off and he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims or sojourners of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiable that does not pass away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. And verse 7 is is really where I want us to start. Verse 6 is really where I want us to start. Verses 4, 5, and 6 speak about the inheritance that we have reserved for us up in heaven that cannot be taken away. But in verse 6, he enters into this idea of greatly rejoicing in the beginning of the verse, but being grieved at the end of the verse. And it's not the only time that we run into the idea of rejoicing over trials. Chapter 1 of the book of James told us the same thing. Consider it joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And here it says, verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. There is a greater rejoicing, and there are various trials that brings grieving into our lives. The rejoicing that we have will be eternal We will rejoice in the Lord. Those who delight in the Lord will receive the desires of their heart. We will find ourselves rejoicing in God. But if need be now, there are various grieving trials. What's the need for those trials? I think it breaks down to an individual person, what you're going through, and what God needs to do inside of each one of our lives. I also believe that God doesn't necessarily cause all trials to happen in order to to do a work in us, but God uses everything, good and bad, for His glory and to work in our lives to do the work that He wants to do inside of us. The testing of our faith is not so that God knows whether or not we've got faith. God already knows, but it's so that you and I will know whether or not we have faith. He goes on to give an example in verse 7. He says that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes. He compares our faith to gold. And he calls our faith the genuineness of our faith. Because gold is faked. Gold was faked in their day. Gold is faked in our day. Gold is the most precious of the metals, you might, certain metal might be a little bit higher, but it's gold that everybody wants. And gold that's been purified. The standard today for purifying gold is 0.9999% or 9999 point. Whatever it is, there's a standard for gold and it's really high. It's really pure. <laughs> that I have no clue exactly what it is doesn't surprise me or you. Um, But if we're thinking about the purity of gold, gold is tested by being put to the fire. People literally mixed lead. They mixed all kinds of metals in with gold. And then they would weigh gold claiming that it was pure. But when you put gold into the pan and you heated it up, the gold would separate from the other metals. And you would be able to scrape the other metals away until all you had remaining was pure gold. All you had left was genuine gold. And there was no other way to find out if that gold was genuine except to melt it down because they melted it down, they stirred it up and then they let it cool and you wouldn't be able to tell by necessarily just looking at it if whether or not it was pure gold. 
The only way to find out how contaminated it was is to heat it up. And here we have an example that the only way to tell whether or not the faith that you and I have is truly genuine, truly saving faith is to heat it up, is that we would face difficulties and hardships. God's big enough that he could take away any difficulties from our lives. God could rescue us from any hardship that would come our way. But God has allowed us to go through them, that he can do the work so that it can be revealed that the genuineness of your faith, much more precious than gold. The most precious thing that you have is your faith because by your faith, you enter into salvation. He's going to get into the whole aspect of salvation, but by faith, you enter into salvation. But what if you think you're trusting God and you're not really trusting him? Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you can ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. There is a need to abide in Christ and stay close to him. The genuineness of our faith, we want to have tested. We don't want to think we've got faith and then find out that we don't genuinely have faith, that we might be following him for what we can gain from him rather than surrendering everything to him. And so when our lives are tested and we face difficulties and hardships, when we grieve, when we suffer, when we suffer loss, we find ourselves saying, God, I'll serve you anyway. Lord, I love you and I'll follow you and I'll serve you no matter what's come my way. That the genuineness of your faith, much more precious than gold, it says, perishes, that it may be tested by fire, just like gold is, may be found to the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That my faith might be found to the praise and glory and honor of God. Not as some state that God's going to give me praise and honor and glory. God's not going to praise me for the glory and honor by praise for my faith, but that my faith truly would bring praise and honor and glory to God, that he would be able to take my life and he would, he would be glorified within it. He goes on in verse eight then and says, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. First of all, whom having not seen you love. Peter had seen him. John says in John chapter one, the one that we have seen, the one that we have handled, we now bring him to you. John is bringing us a first person account of what he has seen and heard. Peter is, is a person who has seen Jesus, but he's writing to people who have never seen him and yet have loved him. You know, the Bible tells us a couple things about believing in God. The Bible tells us that creation speaks of God, Romans chapter one. That when we see creation, we know that there was a creator. In fact, the more science discovers about creation, the more science discovers about the human body, the more we realize that there has to be a creator involved. There's a lot of debate today over design and design being really over uh, design being taught in school instead of evolution, just kind of teaching design and that concept being taught alongside of it. But the interesting thing is today that many of the top scientists believe that we have been placed here, designed to be here, but not by God, instead by aliens. <laughs> because we are far too complex. When you come down to the complexity of the human body, when you come down to the complexity of the cell, do you know that Darwin said 
that if the cell is complicated, then I'm wrong. He kind of saw evolution as something that was really, really simplistic because they weren't able to get down to how complicated cells are. When you study actual cells within your body and what they do, they are so complicated that there are cells that we have identified and we still can't figure out what they do. They don't know whether or not the bacteria that's in your body is good or bad. You take probiotics because you think that they're good for you. You know that they have no clue whether or not taking probiotics is good or bad for you. All they know is you got them in your body, so we might as well add to them. Let's, let's just go ahead and see what happens. And they talk about those in the billions. The truth is, is that when we look at creation, I was 12 years old and kid down the street started to mess with me a little bit. He told me later on that he was messing with me. I don't know whether he was or not. But uh, he said, I, I don't believe in God. And I'm sitting on the curb in a street in Albuquerque. And I said, how can you not believe in God? We're out, it's kind of the sun's going down, stars are starting to come out. I said, how can you not believe in God? Look at the tree, look at the stars. Even creation speaks of a creator. How did these things become in, come into place? Where did they come from? And that's a 12-year-old looking at the simplicity of trees or looking at trees and stars as simple things when they are far more complex than what I ever began to imagine. We haven't seen him, but we believe that there is a God. We believe that there is a creator. You know, Romans 1 not only says that creation speaks of God, but it says that God has given us a testimony within us that he exists. There's something inside of us that tells us that there is a God that causes us to search and look for God. Man might fight against it, but it is there. There's something there, and I, I want to know the truth. I want to know who the true and living God is. So when I was fairly young, I began to search the scriptures. I believed in God, but I wanted to find the proof that God existed. And I don't believe it's by blind faith. I'll never forget beginning to discover prophecies about the nation of Israel, then becoming a nation again, born again in a day, God restoring the land, God restoring the people, and how excited I got. I, I got so excited about those prophecies, Ezekiel 36, 37, 38, 39, and 40, that I, I connected them to my witnessing. When I witness to someone, I tell them all about it. But I found that they weren't as excited about it as I was. I've come to the conclusion that those passages are, here's the thing, in teaching too, I'll teach uh, Ezekiel 36, 37, 38, and 39, I'll teach it and then give an altar call at the end of a study, and there's a couple people that come forward. I talk about the love of Christ for someone for a couple of services and give an altar call at the end of that, and 20 people raise their hands and give their lives to Christ because there's something about the drawing of God. People are not going to be argued into the kingdom. If they're argued into the kingdom, they can be argued back out of the kingdom. In fact, that same thing. I had a friend of mine who I was working out of his garage. We were going to start an upholstery shop. I'm working out of his garage. While we're there, I'm witnessing to him. I'm showing him passages, fulfilled prophecy in the Bible, the nation of Israel, all these things. And he, he gives his life to Christ that night. The next morning I come over and he goes, you won't believe what happened, but some Mormons came by and I'm a Mormon now. <laughs> so he gave his life to Jesus when I was showing him those stuff, and then the Mormons came by and he became a Mormon. And I was like, no, 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 no. 
But what I've discovered is that it's a move of God that someone enters into the kingdom of God. It's not a move of Robert Furrow. It's not a move of information. Well, I just got to get the right information. Salvation is like just putting the right information like a combination. You give them this passage and then that passage then this passage then that passage and bang, then they're born again. It's God moving on the heart of an individual. It's something supernatural that takes place. And it's almost undescribable what God does so that we say, you know what? I've never seen him, but I love him. I've never seen him, but I can't wait to see him. I long for the day when I see him and I'm able to see with my eyes the one that I have loved and committed myself to, that I live by faith. And the genuineness of our faith that is tested reveals the love that we have for him, even though we haven't seen him. It says then in verse eight, though now you do not see him, you believe and rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The joy that we have is inexpressible. Again, it's the larger picture of joy. It's not that that joy isn't interrupted from time to time, if need be, by grievous things, right? And then he goes on to say in verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's a powerful verse. The end of our faith is the salvation of our souls. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which came first, your salvation or your faith? Boy, that's a debate. It's a debate already. In 1 Peter, I've been distracted by a couple of times, right? And all of a sudden, you read another passage like verse 9, you go, here we go again. Well, let's just read it at face value. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Listen, no one would come to Christ unless God drew them. Salvation's a complete and total work of God. We're not denying that. We're not denying that God's the one that reaches out to us, that God's the one that draws us, that God's the one that keeps us, that without him, we wouldn't stay. We would wander away, but it is by faith. It's by trusting in him. And to take faith completely out of the picture and to try to replace it with some new idea or new concept of grace is just not right. Receiving the end of our faith, the salvation of our souls. It reminds me of Matthew 24 that says, he who endures to the end will be saved. I believe that we can have a confidence in, in our salvation, that we can know that we're saved. The greatest confidence that we have in our salvation is staying close to Jesus. There's controversy as to whether or not if you are not walking and abiding in Christ, you're gonna go to heaven. There's controversy over that. But there's no controversy for those who are close to Christ. I've had people say to me, if I prayed a prayer and if I invited Christ into my life when I was younger and I'm not walking with him now, am I still gonna go to heaven? I've had that question asked me, I don't know how many times over the years, but I've never had anybody say, you know, lately I've been really close to Jesus. And I was just wondering if I'm gonna go to heaven if I'm close to him. There's just something about knowing it. And so we stay close to him. We get as close to him as we can. Why live by the edge? when we can walk in the very middle, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls for that inheritance that is kept for us, that is incorruptible up in heaven. And then he says, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. The prophets didn't have all of the picture 
The prophets prophesied Habakkuk and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. And they longed to see the whole picture of how it was all going to come to pass. Some of them spoke of the suffering Messiah. Some of them spoke of the reigning and ruling Messiah. Some of them spoke of the sacrifice that he would give and of the judgment that he would bring. And they longed to see how these things were going to fit together. In fact, in, uh, in Judaism, around the time of Christ, there was two different groups. Some believing that the Messiah would suffer and others believing that the Messiah would rule and reign because there's prophecies of a ruling Messiah and a suffering Messiah. Some not only believed that there were two different kinds of Messiahs, but some believed that there were actually two Messiahs that were going to come. One was going to come and suffer and one was going to come and rule and reign instead of the idea that one Messiah was going to come the first time to suffer and the second time to reign. That eventually was revealed. So they would read passages on his suffering and read passages on his reigning and then they would make their theology to fit what they didn't understand. That's always a bad way to make theology. If when you're studying the scriptures and you don't understand something, so you come up with theology in order to fit things together, you're probably going to be wrong most of the time. Instead of simply saying, I, I like what Pat Lazovich says from Calvary Chapel in Sierra Vista. Instead of simply saying, I don't know. Hey, sometimes those are the best words that you can say about the Bible. I don't know, but I believe it. I don't know how you can have a suffering Messiah and a reigning Messiah. I don't know, but I can't wait to see how God's going to work it out. I can't wait to see what God's going to do. I don't know how God can choose and I can choose, but I can't wait to see how it all happens and what God does. And what I know is that I need to believe in him. And the end of my faith is this salvation. And these prophets longed and desired to look in to that salvation. It goes on to say in verse 11, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So see, he's speaking about this very thing. He's speaking about the prophets who are testifying of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. He's clearing up the struggle that a lot of the rabbis had about how does the suffering Messiah and the glorious Christ, how does the glorious Messiah all work together? These guys didn't understand it when they were writing it. They longed to look into our salvation, but we've seen these very things take place. We see the sacrifice of Christ as he gives himself for our sins. And we've seen that we are now waiting for him to come back again. And upon his return is the revealing of our salvation. It says in verse 12, to them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering. The things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel. So again, verse 12, to them it is revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering these things. So it is to us that the prophets were writing to, to those who would come to Christ, to those in our day who are called Christians that the prophets were, were ministering to, to you through those who have preached the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, the good news, that if you trust in him, that if you receive him, the Bible says in John 1, 12, that as many as receive him, he gives the power to become a child of God. 
to those who believe in his name. So that if you say, Lord, I want you in my life and I receive you into my life, that he will come into your life and bring a transforming power with him. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.